This program is brought to you with support from the U.S. EPA. We're here to present the EFC Network Podcast. The Environmental Finance Center Network is a partnership of 12 centers serving 10 EPA regions. The EFCN provides training and technical assistance to small water and wastewater systems. This podcast series has been designed to help system personnel improve technical, managerial, and financial capacity of the utilities and communities they serve. Welcome to the EFC Network Podcast. This is Greg Pearson, Water and Wastewater Systems Trainer at the Great Lakes Environmental Infrastructure Center. Today's episode is titled, GIS Tools for Small Water Systems. We will be speaking with Ryan Williams, who is a geospatial research scientist and the assistant director of the geospatial research facility at the Great Lakes Research Center located at Michigan Technological University. In this discussion, our goal is to explore how GIS tools can benefit small utilities. Ryan, thank you for taking the time to come and share with us today. Uh, Thanks, Greg. I'm happy to be here to share. Uh, Basically, I'm a geographer, and much of the work I do relates to mapping things or understanding how things move or change over time and working out how to share that information easily with other people. A lot of what I do here at Tech involves helping other people use mapping and GIS tools in their work, and that includes research or public engagement or asset management. I started my career uh, many years ago in local government, uh, helping modernize asset management uh, for a county division of transportation in Illinois. That involved mapping a lot of tangible things that we could see and inspect, and connecting a lot of maintenance and inspection history to those. This was a great way to learn how to build a GIS and learn different ways to connect physical things with events or observations about them. I still use these skills a lot in the work I do today. One example of that is the work I do on a project called the Keweenaw Time Traveler. Can you share a little bit more about that time traveler? That sounds fascinating. Yeah, so the Keweenaw Time Traveler takes old historic maps of our area up here in Michigan's Keweenaw Peninsula and makes them interactive on a website. You can click on a building and information will pop up about what material the building was made out of, what it was used for, when it was built, and how it changed over the years as additions were added to it uh, or its purpose changed. The big thing is that it also shows who lived there over all those years. You can click on a person in the building and learn about all the places they lived, who their family was, what their occupation was, uh, where they went to school and who their classmates were. And you can search on all these things too. So if you want to find out about all the barbershops in the area, you can do that. If you want to find all of the people from the Smith family, you can do that really easily. So I like this as an example of what GIS can do because it's a good example of connecting a location, a a place, with information about that place. It lets us take what's just a pretty map and make it much more useful and informative. So it, it ties that location of a thing together really tightly with any endless amount of information about that thing and lets you organize and visualize it all based on its place in a way that you can't do with a paper file or a simple spreadsheet. Wow, so it's place-based and it's, it's a lot more than just a pretty map. So could you tell us a little bit more about exactly what GIS is and perhaps uh, when you would need to use it instead of a CAD program? So essentially, it's a map with a database attached to it. Uh, So imagine if you had a huge room of filing cabinets and some super smart staff people 
to find and cross-reference information based on what's in those files and based on where these things are on the map. It takes that geography part and it glues it together with the information part and gives you the tools to work with all of those together. So that's your geographic information system. CAD can give you the pretty map. It can give you the location of water valves, for instance, but it can't hold all the information about the maintenance or testing of that valve. It can't quickly tell you what happens downstream if you shut off a valve. CAD can't easily let you find everything on your network older than a certain age uh, or do for inspection next year in a way that a GIS can. That sounds fairly complex. Uh, if, if a water system wants to start out with GIS, should they find someone that has a geospatial science degree? Uh, well, so for a small operation, you don't necessarily need to have a dedicated GIS professional uh, to keep your system up to date. Um, as a GIS professional, I feel obligated to say, yes, you should hire them and pay them well. But realistically, uh, once the system is up and running, updating the information in that and adding new items to it is about as easy as filling out a form. If, if you can use Word or you can use Excel, then you can probably update a system once it's going. Um, it would likely be helpful to have somebody with a specialty in GIS to help you get started in the beginning and help get things going. Uh, if you don't already know these kinds of people, uh, then there's likely one that you could connect with in your county organization or a county equalization office uh, or a regional planning district. Uh, there's also several user groups out there that are focused on small municipalities and agencies that, that do things with GIS that can help. Well, that's great advice. Uh, let me step back a little bit from the topic and I'd like to ask you, how does GIS on the whole make our lives better? Could you give some examples? Sure. So especially for something like water systems, for example, or transportation networks, being able to understand where things are on the map in relation to each other is really helpful because these things are all interconnected. Changing one thing on a network can impact other things connected to it. You also have to physically visit a lot of these things often, right, to maintain them and care for them. And they aren't always easy to find. So anything that makes navigating to these places and these things easier is definitely a win. There's a concept used by data librarians called FAIR, F-A-I-R. And that's something that they use in reference to data sets, and it means that the data is findable, accessible, interoperable, and reusable. You can do this all kinds of ways, but modern GIS tools are really good at helping make your information fair. Some, some concrete examples of this. Uh, findable means that you know where your data is. Uh, you can find the maintenance and construction records. You can find out where a valve is in the yard of somebody's street address. You can find all the pipes in your network made of a certain material. Or you can find what lines break the most often. People in your office know that if they want to find something on your system that they can go to the GIS. Accessible means that your people can get to the data and the tools to find the information they need. Uh, this is the maps on their computer or a handheld GPS in the field or even just on their phone. Uh, they don't have to wait to get the information from someone else or hunt around for the right map book in somebody's truck or ask around the shop to find the person that remembers how deep a pipe was buried 10 years ago. They have the tools and the information they need right then and there. Interoperable means that you can use this information outside of a specific GIS tool. This data can be shared and tied into your work order system. Uh, it can be used with the GPS unit in the field to navigate you right to the thing you're looking for. It can be shared with other departments or engineering firms. 
that you're doing work with. Uh, again, modern GIS tools are really great at doing this now. Uh, and the interoperability has really improved in the past 10 years, where if you get one GIS system, you're not really locked in, right? If you said, I, I got ArcGIS, I put everything in a shapefile, and now I can't use it anywhere else. That's really not such a problem anymore, and there's, there's great tools to, to, to help with that. Uh, finally, reusable ties in really tight with interoperable. And the best way to describe reusable is that it means that when you entered your data and your information, you followed a protocol. Uh, you set and followed a standard for entering things like a pipe diameter. Uh, you specified clearly what the units were. Uh, you explained what acronyms are or what abbreviations are in your data. Uh, you followed a standard procedure for storing the coordinates of where things are on Earth. Uh, and again, modern GIS tools really make all these things really simple to do um, and really almost foolproof once you get it set up. That's amazing. Uh, that's great information. I like that uh, FAIR acronym. Uh, so I think you've kind of partially answered this question already, but why should a utility consider transitioning to GIS? Uh, don't most operators already know where all of their, their buried utilities are? Uh, so, they, so they probably do, right? Um, but one of the things that can change is the operators and the employees change uh, over the years here. And GIS will, will really help make it easy to find these things and not just have to have one person with that knowledge or one person with the expertise to get into the files or get into the tools to find them. Uh, it really gives that central spot where everyone knows where to find this information. Um, it lets you uh, find things quickly. So if you have an emergency repair uh, and the person that knows where these buried utilities are is in the Bahamas on vacation, for example, this gives you the tools and the data that you would need uh, to have someone else in the office be able to find uh, and act on that information. Uh, it also lets you do more analysis than if you just know where the buried things are. It lets you tie in a lot more information about the things. So if it's a pipe, you know when it was put in there, what material it was made out of, uh, if repairs were done to it. So it's not the same as it was when it originally went in the ground. This is a great way to track things like that and be able to bring them back really easily. And as you mentioned before, uh, uh, possibly the ability to walk right up to that, uh, that location using a handheld device, you would be able to pinpoint the location. Yeah, there's lots of tools out there that can tie in with several different kinds of GIS um, that work on a GPS or even work on your phone, right? So you could have data like this on your phone or a handheld computer. You can connect it to a really accurate GPS so that it does better than what a phone might do. Um, but it allows you to, to search for something in the field. Let's say it's a water valve that might be partially buried uh, or, or a survey benchmark that hasn't been found in 10 years, but you knew where it was. This gives you the ability to literally walk right up to them, um, maybe if they're buried under, under soil or snow or things like that. Are there any uh, existing data standards that water operators uh, should know about and can simply have access to and use, or do we need to design them ourselves? Uh, there are a lot of data, data standards that are out there already, and there's a lot of uh, what I call templates that are out there. Um, different, different places that build GIS applications uh, like ESRI, uh, QGIS, uh, there's, there's examples that are out there most of them freely available to use um, that already kind of have the framework and all of the forms and all of the data tables built for
for you, empty, ready to go for you to put your information in there. Um, kind of following that FAIR acronym from earlier is a really good broad way to, to think of your data when you're looking at it. So if you're uh, looking at a template and you're thinking about, okay, here's how my data is stored and how it's structured, there's also some other pieces in there to making it accessible um, and findable to people too. Um, having a good data dictionary is a data dictionary is, is basically that template that, that sets out um, what the acronyms in your data mean, uh, what, what the attributes about them mean, uh, what your units are and things like that. And there's, there's some of those that are out there already to start with too. And all these are customizable as well. Some of them you might be able to customize on your own. Some of them you may have somebody uh, come in and, and help you do things like that. So the template uh, simplifies the, what the operator has to do uh, down to almost like filling out a form. Yeah, for sure. It, it's exactly like that. Once you get it set, you're filling out that form and you really want it to, to be that way. And that way your data comes into the, to the database. It comes into the GIS in a uniform way, right? Everyone talks about if it's a six inch pipe, they use the number six, right? They don't write SIX. Uh, they don't write six in a little quote, right? There's using those forms uh, helps keep your data standardized. And then that makes when you want to, to query it, when you want to ask questions about your data and say, show me everything that's a six, it all shows up. You're not looking for five different versions of that in your data. That makes sense, that makes sense. Uh, what advice could you give to utilities that are just starting out or considering starting out with GIS? Uh, so one main thing that I, I have from personal experience in, in my career um, is you, you need to work with your management group, you need to work uh, with uh, with your higher-ups in your organization to because you're going to have to spend some time and some effort to build these But it's also really really important to work with the people that are actually on the ground doing the day-to-day -day work in the field um, I've worked putting in some asset inventory work before where we started from our office We started as the geographers and the and the planning people uh, we put out a tool we gave it to the guys in the field and they hated it They felt like it was extra work. We weren't making their life any simpler uh, so when we went back for another application working with uh, modernizing a sign inventory that was pretty much all on paper in books we went straight to the people that did the work in the field and we asked them what what is something that's really tough in your job what's something that kind of annoys you or you wish was easier to do uh, and one of the things they mentioned was missing signs so a sign gets hit lopped off by a snowplow stolen by a bunch of high schoolers right being able to, to come back and find out where that sign was, uh, was really important for them. And if it's, it's, for instance, if a sign gets broken off and you don't know where that sign was, where the post was in the ground, you have to call in a utility locate to make sure that you don't break something when you put a new hole in there. Um, so if they were able to, to find the post or exactly find the hole in the ground where it went, that could save them a lot of time. And it was typically something they wanted to get done quickly because it was often a safety issue. Uh, so we designed a tool uh, that made it easy for them to find missing signs in that, and it, it, we, collected the, we collected the GPS information at an accuracy that was good enough that they could go in there and find the hole again. Um, and once we put that in place, we got a call from them one day that said, yeah, we just went out there, we had a missing sign, we actually put the rod right in the hole uh, from the GPS right in the hole where the sign was, and we were able to fix the thing really quick and saved a ton of time and effort there. So it's really important to, to go right and work with your people that are doing the work 
Um, if you get the day labor crew or you get the labor crew involved and they, they're bought in and see the, the value of what you're doing for them, that will help you win with the whole organization. So in, in the water uh, analogy, uh, you, that would be your operations staff and you want, to, you want buy-in from them so they can embrace the technology and begin using it. What about um, if utilities are looking at some of these more expensive commercial softwares and maybe they're tempted to go for some of these either free or low cost uh, or open source alternatives. So what should, how should they be thinking about that? Uh, so a couple of ways to think about that. Um, some, of the, some of the alternatives you have out there, if you've got a, a more commercial or more expensive application that's out there, uh, you'll likely get some more ready-made tools. Uh, you'll likely get more people out there that are able to help you implement things like that because they've had professional training in that. Um, but there are costs that come with that, right? Um, some of the free tools that are out there, uh, you don't have to pay recurring licenses on that. You, you do still have to have computers and tools to use it just like you would with the commercial package. Um, but sometimes it's a little tougher to get started from scratch on those because you're, you're building things a little more on your own. So something that's important with, with any of these uh, is to look for some training that'll help you out with it. Um, there's, there's applications like QGIS out there that, that's a free package. Uh, it's been around for many years now. Uh, the, the user network has gotten really good out there. There's YouTube videos you can watch and learn how to do a lot. Um, but if you're really doing this for your job, it's probably worthwhile to look at maybe a little bit of, of, of a workshop, of training of something uh, that might help you get started quickly. And that's where you might go to your neighbors and see what they use and see if they've got advice for you. Uh, see if you've got a GIS professional somewhere in your county or in your region, maybe at your regional planning district. Um, that can help you with that. Um, here in Michigan, we've got an organization called MyCamp that caters to small municipalities and small cities that have a lot of small uh, utilities and water shops there. And places like that, uh, meetings like that, are, are spots where they do have kind of like a whole day workshop that's, that's made to be affordable and easily accessible uh, to small groups and really kind of ramp you up really quick, right? And give you the basics that you need to get started and not spend a whole lot of time trying to figure everything out, right? So these are, even the free tools can be complicated when you're getting started. So it's always good to get uh, a little bit of extra help in the beginning there, get a little bit of training so you don't spend a ton of time kind of trying to hack through things. but. Once you get started, a lot of these tools are very similar and they're all uh, fairly easy to use nowadays. Okay, so it's kind of a trade-off maybe between a more initial expense versus more initial learning, learning curve. For sure. Uh, the, the commercial tools out there that have ready-developed templates and ready-developed tools um, or, or whole online platforms that are really easy to use, uh, you have to pay for those over time. They cost more money uh, when, you're, when you're starting out and, and paying for the license, but they're easy to use. And it's fairly easy if you uh, have new people coming and going, it's easy to find people that are trained to keep maintaining those things. The open source tools, they're really cheap to start out with, but you might end up spending thousands of person hours uh, learning how to program or develop them. So if you have some really savvy people who are really sharp on that and can dive into QGIS and Set up uh, QGIS Cloud is one option that's out there now. That's a new thing that lets you use that on the web. Uh, so really similar to some of the ArcGIS tools that are out there. Um, it's a more affordable option that's out there. 
just so long as you have access to some people who can do a little more effort to get it started. Um, but really, once it's up and running, things things function similarly. So, kind of depends on which way you want to go. If you if you want to build tools more on your own, or if you want to be able to just buy things off the shelf and implement them right away. Okay, that's that's great advice. Uh, in a previous conversation, uh, you had talked about uh, some work that you had done using some lower cost GPS equipment to locate objects under deep snow. Uh, could you? Take us through that project, how it came to be, and maybe anything that you that you learned from it. Sure. Uh, so this this is a project that we got started with. Um, we use a variety of global positioning systems or GPS units uh, up here uh, for research, for work, uh, and for teaching students about how to use these tools. Uh, we had the opportunity to 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 early buy a couple of GPS uh, units. That cost less than $2,000 and marketed the ability to have centimeter level accuracy. Um, this, is, this is really a big deal. Typically to get uh, data of that quality, you're spending over $10,000, right? So we were pretty skeptical and interested. So we got a couple of these, these, uh, these MLID units is what they were called. Um, and I took them out and did some research in the fall with them. Uh, found uh, survey benchmarks that were around campus and around the Keweenaw here some way up in the tip set in bedrock, some just out by our football field. Um, and I went out and I mapped him, and then I waited a month, six weeks to let things change with the satellites, to let things change with the environment. And then I went back out and tried to, to, to use that GPS data I collected before and navigating on that tool to walk around and see if I could find them again. And a, an interesting thing that happened up here in the fall, it snowed. So I wasn't able to see the actual things I was looking for, so it was a great test. Um, so I went to one of the first locations I mapped. Uh, I had a survey, had the GPS on top of a survey rod. I walked around and followed a little bubble where it was showing me to go, and I set the rod down and I heard it clink. And I dug out in the snow and I had hit the point right there. Wow. Um, so not every, not every time was that perfect, but all of them pretty much, I just had to kind of clear a little circle around the size of my foot, uh, and I was able to find them. And so it was using uh, nothing customized tools that are freely available on the web to work with this. Um, so there are tools that are out there like that that are simple. It's not a whole GIS. It's just one tool you can use to do them. Um, but there's a lot more opportunity out there now than there was even five or six years ago that you can again get into some, some low cost options to get started out there, uh, not have to have a humongous budget and still be able to make things that'll help your job easier. We, we also want to hear that tink. Yeah, yeah, you That's want to a hear great that. story. You had uh, shared with us another story too, on the transportation side, uh, there was a story about a bridge that had failed. And uh, I think there was a, a bus that had fallen through a, a bridge. Could, uh, could you tell us a little bit about that um, as it relates to risk, risk management? How sure. we can, maybe we can apply that to water and wastewater. Yeah, so, so that example, uh, it, was a, it was a culvert, it was a big culvert, so it wasn't really a bridge, but it was a big pipe under the road. Um, it, was, it was an older one, it had been there for many years, uh, and slowly over time, there were little potholes forming, and the, the crews every year would, would fix the pothole and fill it in, and things all seemed fine. Uh, and then one day, a school bus drove over it, and I think the bus got over it, I'm not sure if it fell in, but it was, it was really close enough to get people worried. And a big sinkhole formed, top of the culvert failed, fell in, had to close the road emergency. Um, 
And it took several months to repair, right? It wasn't just a little pipe, it was a pretty big pipe. Uh, and so one of the things that, that, that ties in with that is that GIS, right? If we were able to, to keep putting in those repair records right there, right? If you were tracking that um, in the work orders that repairs were done at the same location all the time, uh, you're able to look at that and see, hey, there's a culvert right here that was put in in 1942, uh, made out of corrugated metal, might not do so well in a high salt environment, right? So uh, that's a thing where a GIS can really help with risk management there. Um, you could also, using that example, to see that, well, this one failed here. Where else in our transportation network do we have similar things? Do we have pipes of similar age or size or composition? Um, and that's what we did after that. We, we put together a five-year plan every year with that for what maintenance was going to be. And that instantly became a priority. So we were able to go out and pinpoint where all of those were uh, and, and do some inspections and put together the budget so that we avoided a situation like that in the future. So on the water and wastewater side, we could maybe look at how many main breaks or, or sewer breaks are happening or just the age of pipe. Uh, if we're looking at cast iron pipe, which is subject to corrosion, we could search and find those old ones and prioritize our inspection efforts and replacement efforts. For sure, yeah. That's that's like the one of the cookie cutter examples of things you can do with with GIS like that, and you can do things like that with a database. But this gives you so much more power, and that you know where they are, uh, and you know how they're connected to other things. Well, uh, let's uh, shift to uh, discuss any downsides of GIS. Are there any negative aspects or pitfalls we should talk about? No, no. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Yeah, there are some downsides. Uh, one, of, one of the main ones is when you're getting started, right? It's going to take some time, it's going to take some effort, and it's going to take a, at least a little bit of funding uh, to get the tools that, that you need to get started there. Um, it's also really important that, that uh, once the GIS gets built, it's not, it's not done, right? You're never really ever done with it because it's a thing that's changing, right? It's information about your assets, about your places, uh, about your facilities and all of those things age, all of those things get maintained and changed um, and expanded. So it may not be a downside that, that it needs to become part of your workflow, but it is an important component. Um, it, it needs to become part of, of your daily work, right? So instead of uh, doing, a, doing a job in the field and writing up a note about it, putting it in the file cabinet, it needs to come back and get entered in or you need to give your workers the tools to be able to do that right there in the field, right? So uh, as soon as they do an inspection or as soon as they do maintenance or as soon as they exercise a valve, they're able to record that right away. It goes right into the system. Um, and then that's all done, right? That's done, it's performed by the person that did the work. Uh, very little very little area for error in that. Um, but yeah, the, the downside there is if you, don't, if you don't make it part of your process, if you don't maintain the information, it becomes out of date. Um, and then you get the situation where a field person goes out there, looks for this thing, what they see in the field doesn't match your map anymore and they lose confidence in it. So it's definitely a, a commitment you have to make to make it part of your process. Um, and it does take some learning and it does, it does take a little bit of investment even for the free tools. But uh, I think typically, if you implement it well, uh, if you make it part of your, of your daily routine for everyone to use, uh, the positives usually outweigh all of all of the negatives for sure. I, I, I took uh, some notes in what you were just saying. Yeah, that was excellent advice. So, uh, 
to implement some of those things, we would need to budget time, budget that time that, say, operators need to enter data and to record what they've done for assets. So that maybe takes an extra 15, 20 minutes to enter, enter data, to keep it up to date, and maybe time for analysis to look at what's going on. But also you mentioned uh, uh, having access to in-field tools. Uh, what would those kind of what would that look like? Is it like a, a, a like an iPad type of tool or a GPS device or what kind of infield tools do you think would would be associated with field work? Yeah, so there there's the the iPads are an option. Um, there's there's a lot there's there's, well, there's at least a couple of companies out there that that really specialize in ruggedizing um, existing off the shelf tools. So there's companies that make cases for iPads that make them really tough and real resilient. Uh, so they can be out in a field environment. Um, there's several companies that make devices specifically built for the field or built for the military that can go out there um, and get dropped and kicked and, and lost. Um, uh, one example I have is working up at the Division of Transportation. Uh, we put together a culvert inventory project and we had several of these uh, units uh, built by the Trimble company. Uh, they were handheld. They were know, about the size of a pasty, which might not mean much to people outside of here, but smaller than a loaf of bread, right? They they were a little bigger than your hand, but they had a GPS antenna that was really accurate. They had a small computer in them about the size of a phone. Um, and we built forms that tied in directly with our GIS. So the field people could go out there and they did their inspection right there on the handheld device. They didn't, so instead of filling out a paper form and filing it, they just did their entry right there in the field. So it actually saved them a little bit of time compared to coming back in the office with it. Um, one good story with those is one of them came back to my office at the end of the week and it had a big black smear mark on it and a, a little kind of crease down the side and I asked what happened and they said, well, I dropped it and a truck was coming so I had to kick it across the road to get it out of the way. <laughs> they said it kept working, it was fine and it, it worked as long as I was there too. So there's, there's a lot of tools that are out there that are waterproof, that are uh, drop resistant, um, that are really friendly to work with. And also a lot of these tools nowadays will work on your phone. So if you've already got your own phone for work or your, just your personal phone, uh, you can put these kind of things on there too. And again, they ruggedize all that kind of thing. So this is kind of where that, that interoperability and that reusability comes in with the data, right? So back in the day, you might have had to have a laptop or a really expensive tablet computer that could run all the software. Nowadays, a lot of these things are just a mobile app just like anything else you, you'd put on your phone. So. The, the cost of the technology you need to use them in the field isn't really any more than having a phone or something like an iPad. And so, so the, the workflow practice would probably normally be taking that device back to the office and then uploading it, usually? or So that's the way it was done uh, when I did it a lot before. That's, that's one way that works. Another way that works is if you have access to cellular data in the field, you can be connected directly to your data um, on the cloud or even back at your at your home office if you've got a little server there. Um, this is the way a lot of the tools work nowadays. So instead of having to download data to the computer, take it out in the field, edit it, bring it back in, synchronize everything, right, and track it, um, you're able to, if you've got that data connection, work directly with the data there uh, and make those updates. And coupled with that, uh, they always track who made the update, when the update was made, uh, you get the ability to, to go back and see what it changed from. So if somebody's out there and makes a mistake in the field, it's not hard to go back and, and fix that. So that's really made a big difference in the past, oh, five or six years probably, being able to 
tie directly to your data easily on just about any device that's got a data connection um, and work right there with it, right in the field. Uh, you can, if you have an emergency in the field and you need to find something, it's able for you to, you can get on that device, get your data connection, learn what you need to, to learn in the field, um, make the repair or make the change, and then even update what you did right back to the home office there really easily. Wow. Yeah, so I can see a, a situation where there's some kind of emergency and you can bring the data up to know what, what the outside diameter, what type of pipe it is, what type of valve it mm -hmm. is, and be able to maybe even call in the right kind of reinforcement, so to speak, to bring the right tools to the, to the site. For sure, for sure. And, and with, with tools, like some of the more expensive tools from ESRI, uh, some of these things, there's no programming involved. It's literally checking some boxes uh, on a form on the website and it enables that editing and that connection right to your data to happen. You don't, you don't need a database programmer, you don't need a web programmer, you don't need a telecommunications person. It's all baked right into the applications nowadays. Well, wonderful. We really appreciate you sharing with us today. Uh, any final thoughts you'd like to share with us before uh, we wrap up? Uh, I don't know. Uh, really, uh, some, some main things to think about are uh, if, you're, if you don't have anything like this yet uh, and you're thinking about doing it, um, do, do a little research, reach out to your neighbors, uh, reach, out, reach out to organizations that, that work with your industry that would already know about some of these things and see what's working for people nowadays. Um, don't try to start from scratch all by yourself because uh, this kind of thing's been around for many decades now. So there's lots of people out there that, that can help you get started and give you the right places to start. Um, for sure, go to the people on the ground and ask them what would, make, what would make their day easier and focus on things like that, right? Focus on easy wins. Um, and it's okay to start small. Uh, one, one thing that was an obstacle in the past is people would want to start a GIS and they would incorporate every department of everybody in their city or their municipality and they try to do it all at once and it would take many years and then it would, it would be created and it would already be out of date because it took so long to make. So it's okay if you, if you just want to start with, with your signs or you just want to start with water valves for instance and you're just trying to get the locations and then tie in an ID that can then maybe tie in more data. Um, it's okay to start small and, and work in little pieces that you can create and maintain um, and kind of ease people into using these new tools and that. Um, and for sure, they'll like it and it'll start to help out their life. Well, thank you, Ryan. And uh, that uh, concludes our podcast for today. And once again, we were speaking with Ryan Williams, the Geospatial Research Scientist and Director of the Geospatial Research Facility at the Great Lakes Research Center, located at Michigan Technological University. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you to all our listeners for tuning into this episode of the EFC Network Podcast, brought to you with support from the U.S. EPA. Be sure to stay tuned for future EFC Network podcast episodes.